Welcome, and thanks for listening to the Harvest Lakeshore Sermon Podcast. For more information about us, visit harvestlakeshore.org. Please turn with me to Hebrews 7. We'll be reading verses 1 through 10. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was, whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi, who received the priestly office, have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these are also descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you, Dave. Well, uh, as we ended last week, uh, we ended at the end of chapter 6, and that really provides the context of what Dave just read for us. So if you could look back at your Bibles at the end of chapter 6, I'm just going to read verses 19 and 20. We have this, this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So you remember we talked about Jesus being the anchor. We talked about him being the forerunner, taking the anchor into the harbor when the ship can't go into the harbor just that he's anchored in the harbor. We're anchored to Christ in heaven. So we have that kind of as the, the backdrop, but then the author of Hebrews makes a comparison. He makes a comparison with Jesus and this Melchizedek. And comparisons can be helpful, right? If you want to talk about someone who has, you know, great integrity or leadership and compare that, maybe if someone references like Abraham Lincoln, like you'd be like, oh yeah, yeah, I get that. I get what, what he did in his life. Or maybe you want to uh, you know, show the characteristics of someone who fights for freedom, someone who has courage. You might mention somebody like Martin Luther King. You immediately know, oh, from his story of his life, the things that he did. Or maybe if you, you reference Corey Ten Boom, you'd be like, oh, someone who persevered under trial in a concentration camp. And there's a lot of things that come to your mind. So the comparison can be helpful if you understand the individual that is being compared to. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to understand who this Melchizedek is that's referenced in this passage. So we're going to answer three questions. We're going to answer who is Melchizedek, 
Why is Melchizedek such a big deal? And what does Melchizedek have to do with Jesus? So the first question is, who is Melchizedek? So if you look at verse 1, the author starts by saying, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. Now remember this book is being shared with Hebrew Christians, so they would have understood their Old Testament. So there's a story behind this verse. So we're going to kind of go on a little bit of a history lesson today and go back to what is being referenced here. So if you leave your hand or your finger in this part of your Bible and flip back to Genesis chapter 14. Genesis chapter 14. So that verse is referencing something that happened back in the book of Genesis chapter 14. But before we read that part of the scripture, it's helpful to understand the context of the story. So remember last week we talked about Abraham who was blessed by God and through him all the nations were going to be blessed. Well, he's in a situation where there are some kings who had gone and taken his nephew Lot and he is going to go rescue them. So he goes and he takes a bunch of like commando type guys, like 300 and some odd guys that were like tough guys. They go and they defeat these kings. They, they rescue Lot. They bring him back and they, they plunder uh, those who they, they overtake. And so they're coming back with the spoil. So the context is, you know, he's, Abraham has just come back from, from battle, from war might have blood on his hands and his clothes. He's probably tired, but yet there'd probably been a a heightened awareness of victory. They had just won a battle. So that's kind of what sets the stage for what we're going to read. So look at Genesis 14, starting in verse 16. It says, Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. After this, after his return from the defeat of Chedor Leomar and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom, went out to meet him at the valley of Shava, that is the king's valley. And then something unexpected happened. So like he's coming back from the battle, something unexpected happens. It says, and Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high. And he blessed him and said, blessed be Abram. Now, when we see Abram, Abraham, God later calls him Abraham. So when you hear Abram, it's the same person, Abraham, Abram. Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. So that's the story that's the backdrop for verse 1 in chapter 7. Now, what, what isn't rightly or readily apparent to us as we read it is we don't realize how much time has passed from the mention of what happens in Genesis and what happens in Hebrews chapter 7. So probably... And this is really the only significant reference of Melchizedek in the Old Testament. There's, there's two references. There's a reference in Psalm as well, as we've, we've talked about, when David uh, was talking about Jesus. He references in Psalm 110.4, he says, The Lord has sworn and will change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So those are the only two places in the Old Testament. You've got this reference 
Then a thousand years happens before David references Melchizedek. So three verses in Genesis, one verse you got referenced here in Psalms, and then a thousand more years passes before we come to Hebrews. Of all the people in the Old Testament, David, Solomon, you know, Isaac, Ishmael, all these people that have all this stuff written about them that the writer of Hebrews could be referencing and talking about. The writer of Hebrews wants to talk about this guy that's only referenced ever so briefly. Why would he want to pick a guy like that to talk about? Well, he picks Melchizedek because it says that Melchizedek is a priest of the Most High God. He's someone who was appointed by God. And if you lived at the time when Melchizedek was referenced in the story in Genesis, you would have been aware of the godlessness of the culture in which he lived. You would have been aware of rampant idolatry that, that would have made what maybe we experience or somewhat experiencing seeing in our culture now like be put to shame. That was kind of the context. And out of that context, there's this guy that pops up that has, that has some kind of extraordinary character. And then the writer of Hebrews kind of unpacks some, some details about Melchizedek. So why is he such a big deal? Well, there's five things that we're going to look at of why Melchizedek was such a big deal. And again, sometimes when we read these things in our cultural context, they they don't really stick out to us, but they would have stuck out to the original hearers. So the first thing that would have stuck out to the original hearers would have been that Melchizedek, it says he was king of Salem and priest of the Most High God. He was both a king and a priest. He was a king and a priest which would have been like, wait a minute, that's not supposed to be the way that it is because in the Old Testament law, which would have come after Melchizedek, the Levites were the ones who were the priests and the kings were the kings. The kings ruled, they were the ones that led the armies, they were the ones that made decisions, and then over here you had the Levites who were the ones that were the priests that made the offerings, they were the ones that cared for the people, they were the ones that made the sacrifices to atone for the sin of the people, and you didn't mix the two. So much so, I mean, David wasn't allowed to establish and build the temple. It had to be Solomon, his son, because David was known as a man of war. That's, these were supposed to be separate. So the fact that they are together is a big deal. And there's a reality in the Old Testament. Oftentimes, kings didn't have the greatest character. I mean, certainly there were righteous kings. There were ones that did godly things. But oftentimes, they are marked by failure and, and sinfulness, where over here, the, the Levites, they were often marked by godliness, generally speaking, though there were some that, that weren't. Uh, in, in this situation, you have Melchizedek, who is both a king and a priest. He's got exemplary character. He's worthy of both offices, having the honor and ability to carry out the kingly office and having the, the character and the calling to carry out this this priestly office. John Calvin said this, amid the corruptions of the world, he alone in that land was an upright and sincere cultivator and guardian of religion. 
So the writer of Hebrews has got the attention of his listeners right now. They're peaked and they're kind of leaning in. And then he goes on and he says that, uh, that Melchizedek met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. Now, when we read blessed, we're like, oh, yeah, we do that. I've been blessed by somebody in my small group, or I want to be a blessing to somebody by taking them a meal or watching their kids so they can go on a date night. We kind of talk about it just in terms of, of kindness that's shared with one another. But in this context, blessing in the Old Testament often comes from someone of a higher position to a lower position. Kind of like maybe you might have heard of different times when like a father is praying for his son to kind of pass on the mantle and there's this blessing. Someone coming from the, the greater authority to the lesser authority and, and offering a blessing. And so that would have stuck out and been significant. Why would that have been significant to the original hearers? It would have been significant to the original hearers because Abraham was the man. Abraham was known as the father of the faith. He's the patriarch. He's the one that's referenced to. I mean, he's talked about. Maybe if you grew up in some church setting, maybe you sang a song like the father Abraham had many sons. You maybe sang a song like that. Like there's a significance to Abraham. But Abraham is not the one doing the blessing. Abraham is the one, as we know, through whom the whole world is going to be blessed. But yet here, he is the one that's receiving a blessing. And they would have started to see, so the original hearers would have started to see, wait, this guy's something special, this Melchizedek. Are you telling me he's the one giving Abraham the blessing? And then it goes on after the blessing, and it talks about a tithe. And and verse 2, it says, And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. So he gives a tithe. And again, we read that and we think, yeah, you know, principles of giving, tithing, we start with 10%. That's talked about in the Old Testament. But remember, at this point in time, the Old Testament law hadn't been put in place. And again, remember the context. Abraham is coming back from battle. He has just won. So he might be tired. He might be exhausted. But he just won. A victory. He rescues his nephew Lot. But when he encounters this guy Melchizedek, there, there's something significant about Melchizedek to the degree that Abraham gives him a tenth of his spoils, a tenth of what he had, had taken in. And the reference there is it's like something that's like the top of the heap, the choicest of the spoils. So not just, not just any, any amount, but even, even the best. It kind of has that feel to it. And this is so significant, the writer is even amazed. Look at verse 4. He says, See how great this man was to whom Abraham, Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. He's great. And it, this would have, been, would have been shocking to those. And even, even though the, the tenth, they, they would have had in their mind, yeah, we give a tenth. They, they give a tenth to the Levitical priests. 
Some could have been like, well, what's the big deal about giving the tenth? We, we give a tenth to the Levitical priest. And then the author goes on to talk about the descendants of Levi, talk about the priests. But really, if we look in verse 8, it says, in the, in the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, so talking about the Levitical priests, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. So in that way, he's talking about Melchizedek kind of going on. So mortals and kind of an immortal. But we'll, we'll talk about that in a minute. He's, he's significant. The author of Hebrews wants to say, look, as much as you have honor and revered priests, none of them is as great as this individual Melchizedek. I want, I want to be clear. And then he, he goes on and he says, uh, one might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. He's trying to say, look, these guys came after all the priests that you have honored in the past. They actually come after Melchizedek. In fact, when Abraham gave his offering, even though they were descendants, they came through the line of Abraham, all the priests that you're aware of. No, even though they, did, they weren't around at that time, just the fact that they came after Abraham shows that they're all in submission to this Melchizedek. They're all lesser than this Melchizedek. Now, these are, these are a lot of details. Like, as, as we're going through this, to me, this kind of feels like when you're, you're in history class and you just, you've kind of heard, you've kind of heard enough and then you just kind of, you kind of start to, to tune out. You're just like, ooh, boy, I want to look out the window because there's just, there's, just, there's just too much for me to take in. That's kind of the point. The writer of Hebrews wants, wants us to see, wanted his original hearers to see these details wanted to make these connections because he's going somewhere, because he knows that they know who, who Melchizedek is. And, and we need to know who Melchizedek is because that will help us to understand Christ. So there's a couple of more. He references Melchizedek's name and his title. So look at the second half of verse 2. It says, He is first by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. And if, if you knew Hebrew, you would hear Melchizedek, and you would know, oh yeah, for sure. You could pronounce the Hebrew words. The first part of his name, uh, you know, references king, and the last part references righteousness. I mean, think about your name carrying the weight of significance that when people hear it, they hear king of righteousness. I know, you know, my kids, when they were born, you know, some, somebody often got them like a little plaque or something with their name and the meaning of their name. None, none of my kids had king of righteousness as the meaning of their name. It's usually something that, that sounds just really nice and pleasant. So he's like getting their attention. And then he... And, and that really sticks out because, remember, at the time, the, the king of Sodom was, was just conquered. He was known for gross immorality and despicable worship. But Melchizedek carried out his duties not for his own selfish gain, but as an extension of righteousness. 
So this guy back in these brief verses back in Genesis sticks out because he carries out his duties righteously. He lived an upright and holy life. But then it says he's king of Salem. And I always get thrown off when I read king of Salem because of the town that's in New England that's referenced when you're studying history and some crazy things that happened there in the 15 and 1600s. Like Salem, like that's a weird place. Didn't some weird things happen there? That is not what the Bible is talking about. The Traditionally, Salem in the scriptures has been identified with the city of Jerusalem. And for, for good reason, because it's referenced as the city of Salem. And what's particularly striking is that Salem comes from the Hebrew word shalom, which means peace. It means peace. A divine and comprehensive peace. That's what shalom means. Not just an absence of conflict, but a presence of harmony. That's what what the connotation is. So in a godless region, a righteous king, priest is overseeing a place of peace. Remember the original hearers, they're in the midst of turmoil. Persecution is starting to happen. They're starting to feel things well up. So the thought of peace would have, would have been appealing, would have caused their ears to peer, perk up. And then the fifth thing, after talking about his name and his title, he references the fact that he has no beginning and no end. So looking at verse 3, he is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. The Bible's not saying that Melchizedek existed forever and then he continues to exist. That's not what the Bible's saying. It's not saying he's divine. But, it's, but there's something that sticks out for us. There's this mystery of this, this story of Melchizedek. We don't know anything about him. I mean, how many times have you been reading, like in the Bible reading plan or when you're reading through the scripture, like you read genealogies, like end after name after name after name that you can't pronounce. But we see like where they came from. Or you continue the story after someone and you, you understand who came after them, where they're going. We don't get any of that with Melchizedek. There's nothing before and there's nothing after. So the scriptures are pointing to a continual priesthood. His life represents an immortal life. He's a type of Christ. And that's, and, and all of these things, all of these five main points point us to Christ. That's what Melchizedek has to do. All of these things point. So Melchizedek isn't Jesus. He wasn't the Savior at that point in time, but yet he's a type of Christ. And oftentimes when we look in the Old Testament, where we see Jesus pointed to is we see images of him, and this is one of those images. And the writer of Hebrews wants his hearers to see this image. They want to know that Christ was pointed to long, long ago, 2,000 years before, because they're going to be tempted to go back to worshiping under the Old Testament law because persecution was coming. And those that were in charge were the, the Jewish leaders who put Jesus to death. 
There would have been temptation. Let's just go back to that. That was secure. That was safe. We know that's dependable. And the writer of Hebrews wants to say, no, don't go back to that. There's someone that's greater. We look back to that because it points us to the one that's greater, and that's Jesus. And each point matters. Each point matters in our daily lives. The fact that Jesus was, is also king and priest matters because Jesus has the power and posture to work in your life. Jesus is a king and a priest. We learn from Revelation 19, verse 16, it says, on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. We know from Colossians 1, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. We need to know not just in name that Jesus is king, but we need to live in the good and the comfort of the fact that he is king and powerful over everything. But he's not just king and powerful over everything, but he is also the priest. He has the the posture to work in you because he's the ultimate priest. Hebrews 7.27 says, he has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins, then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. He isn't just one who's going to offer a sacrifice for you like the Old Testament. He offered up himself. And he doesn't have to continually do it. You don't have to continually come and wonder if you're forgiven because he gave his life for you. But you have to couple these things together. He's also worthy of the kingly office. He's worthy of the priestly office. He's worthy of the kingly office. And he can carry out both duties seamlessly. He's not distracted by the one or the other. He's the ultimate conqueror and victor. And yet over here, he's the one who cares and has compassion and is there for you whenever you want to seek him out. In fact, even when you're running from him, he comes after you. So it's significant for us that Jesus is both king and priest. And for him, blessing is he has the nature to bless. He blesses. Certainly he blesses because he has forgiven our sin. He blesses us by sending his spirit as we sang about, as we ask about. He fills us with his spirit. We aren't alone if, uh, in, in Ephesians, it talks about the fact that he, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places comes because of Christ. But he has, he has the propensity to bless. We briefly talked about this last week. Jesus is, is leaning in because we, we often do struggle with, well, is he just reluctant to bless me? I mean, I mean, I know he died for me, but am I just kind of like that kid that oh, we're just glad he's, he's alive. We just, we just want to make sure he gets in the van. So when we, we head off for the family function, you know, he makes it in. We don't, we don't want to leave him, but, you know, we'd be okay if he didn't make the van. We can kind of feel like we're that. But that's not his posture toward us. 
He went to the cross for us. And he gave all for us. Jesus didn't just come and give 10%. He gave everything. And so when he asks us to get everything, when he says, come, follow me, we give everything because he gave everything, not because we're just kind of obligated, oh, I got to pull up. No, but we see what has been done for us. And we understand uh, Mark 8, 35, which says, forever who would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. So for him, giving isn't just about 10% of the spoils. It's about giving everything to get everything. So he's a king and priest, and he, he has the nature to bless, and he's given all. But Jesus also is one who is righteous. King of righteousness, king of peace. Why does that matter for us? Because then he gives us righteousness and peace. And he continues to give us righteousness and peace. It's not that he just sits up on his throne and he has this title and he has the name on, on, you know, on his robe. No, he, he actually gives us that. Melchizedek was known as the king of righteousness and the king of peace. But Melchizedek couldn't give righteousness and he couldn't give peace. He couldn't do that. But Jesus achieved righteousness. We know that Christ lived a perfect life. And then when he went to the cross to pay the penalty for our sins, if we repent and believe in him, a great exchange took place. Our sinful life was put on Christ and He endured the suffering of the cross, took upon himself the full and complete wrath of God so that his righteous life and the blessings of his righteous life would be put on us. Melchizedek couldn't do that for his people, but Jesus does that for us. So when you struggle with sin or you find yourself in a place of discouragement, and you're hindered from going to your God, remember, when God looks upon you, he sees the righteousness of Christ. You can come running into his presence as if you have done nothing. So the fact that he is king of righteousness is significant because he bestows that righteousness and gives us that righteousness and He gives us peace. In Isaiah 9, 6, we know the prophecy that was was made of Jesus, that he's the, the prince of peace. But he's also the giver of peace. It's not just a title. It has function. When When Jesus came in the flesh, the angel sang, Peace to men on whom his favor rests. They knew peace had come. On the eve of his death, Jesus said these words, peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. And after his glorious resurrection, he's going to utter these words, 
peace be with you. He's the one that brings peace. He's the one that has secured our righteousness. And he's the one that brings peace. That's why the image of the forerunner is so helpful for us. Because the forerunner, remember, the forerunner uh, takes the anchor into the harbor, puts it in the harbor until the tides go down so that the ship can come in. But right now, we aren't in the harbor. We aren't in heaven. We haven't arrived yet in glory. Right now, we are driven and tossed by the waves. And we often feel that. If you're not feeling it now, there will be some time in the coming weeks, months, years where you're going to feel like the seas are just going up and down and you just want to lean over and let everything that you ate for breakfast come out into the ocean. That's, That's just what it feels like for you. But Jesus can bring peace in the midst of that storm. Yes, when we arrive in the harbor, when we are seeing Jesus face to face, we will experience in fullness what that peace is. But he's the forerunner that's gone before and that anchor is secure in the harbor. So when the waves are going up and down, Jesus says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. He even displayed for us what that peace looked like because he was fully trusting in the Father. Remember where the, the disciples are out, they're fishing, and the boat is tossing and turning. What is Jesus doing? He's sleeping. And you can experience that kind of peace because Jesus offers that to you. And if you aren't experiencing that peace, because you've never trusted in Christ, I want to tell you, you you will never experience peace apart from Christ. You must come to Christ because the peace that this world offers is only temporary. Every, Every peace that feels like peace, that feels like brings you a measure of happiness, all of it, all of it passes away. The entertainment, you've got to watch another movie. You got to have the, the other rush. Well, uh, possessions that you have, they wear out, they break. You need, you need more of them, more experiences. Romance, never going to deliver the person. Even if you have a, a, a godly marriage, that person will never satisfy you like Christ. Everything falls short at some point. The peace that you are seeking only comes from God. Young people, learn this now. The joys that you're seeking, the rushes that you're seeking, the peace that you might seek, it only comes from God. But you can experience that peace if you trust in Christ, if you give your life for Christ. And for those of us who have trusted in Christ, in the Gospel of John, Jesus says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Because the author of Hebrews wanted, wanted his hearers to, to grasp this. He points to Melchizedek and he points them to Jesus and says, Jesus is after the order of Melchizedek. These things are true about Jesus, but in such a greater capacity, you're starting to experience persecution. 
You don't have to hold on to your old form of religion. No, hold on to Christ because Jesus is better. As the storms come, these truths about Melchizedek that point us to Christ deliver. But lastly, Jesus has no limit to his rule and his reign. We know from John 1, he was in the beginning with God. We know that all things were made through him. When you need some wisdom, when you need understanding, what do we do? We go to someone who's got some experience. Well, why not go to the one that's been around since before everything existed? So that's the one we go to. And his reign has no end. Again, back to Isaiah 9-7, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. He will never stop praying for you. There will never be a time that he is not there for you. I know I can experience the reality when, when things are hard when I'm going through a trial that I just want to stop, I am certainly tempted to be like, God, are you there? Jesus, are you there? Did you just kind of leave me? You need to know from this truth, he is there. He is there. Every single time. He is king and priest. He has the power and posture to work in your life. He has the nature to bless. He has given all for you. He has given you righteousness and peace because he's the king of righteousness and of peace, and there's no limit or end to his rule and his reign. In many ways, there, we just kind of we have this history lesson, which kind of cements for us gospel truths that we already know. Many of you have heard these gospel truths, but we need to go back to these gospel truths again and again and again. It's helpful, the phrase I heard once, to preach the gospel to yourself every day. We need to be reminded of these because we can forget them. And we are going to be reminded again of what Christ has done by, by taking communion together. Is there something significant that came up in Genesis? You remember when Melchizedek met Abraham. What was the first thing that he did? He gave him bread and wine. Certainly that would have sustained him. And even though the author of Hebrews doesn't reference it, there's just a significance there. There's a, a pointing way back in the book of Genesis to, to a day that was going to happen when Jesus led the disciples in, in the first taking of the Lord's Supper, when he was, was going to go to the cross because he wanted to institute this practice so that the people of God would not forget what he had done. So even as you're reading your Bibles, you're reading through the Old Testament. Your Bible is pointing to Christ. And there's little glimpses of that along the way. Now, if you are here...
today and, and you don't know Christ, I would exhort you to consider Christ. To consider his greatness as the writer of Hebrews has pointed out to us in this passage. As, as we sing and as we pray you can pray right now and ask Jesus to forgive you of your sins. You can experience his cleansing blood and you can know that his righteousness and those blessings are now available to you and that your sins are forgiven and you can experience peace like you've never experienced before. That doesn't mean your life is going to get easier, but you will experience something greater than you ever imagined. But for the saints who have trusted in Christ, we are going to remember that Jesus went to the cross and he, he gave himself. He gave his body to die on a cross to pay the penalty uh, for our sins. So let's take the bread together. And as Jesus went to the cross, he, he shed his blood so that he could wash our sins away, that we would be as white as snow. So let's remember the blood that he shed as we take the cup together. The scripture says, as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now as Melchizedek gave Abraham the bread and the wine, which would have certainly brought refreshment to him as he came from a battle, certainly experiencing victory, but definitely he would have been tired. When we come and we take the bread and the cup together, it should point us to Christ and give us that same kind of refreshment in our souls to be reminded of what Jesus has done. So why don't we pray? Father, these truths about Christ are familiar to many of us, but Lord, would they never get old? Would we wonder at Christ who is both king and priest? Would we be humbled that he blesses us even in our helpless estate? Would we God to find comfort in knowing that his rule and his reign will have no end. And Father, I, I ask, Lord, that if we're in a place of struggle and trial, that we would come to the foot of the cross and that we would come and lay our burdens down and experience the comfort and, and experience answered prayer and experience the presence of Christ. We need Jesus. We ask this, Lord, in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Thank you for listening to the Harvest Lakeshore Sermon Podcast. Harvest Lakeshore exists to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission. For more information about us, visit harvestlakeshore.org.